Uh, Wednesday nights, we are walking through each book of the Bible. Uh, we're not covering every aspect. We're not going scripture to scripture to scripture. We're just trying to give an overview of each book of the Bible. And so tonight, we are in the book of Ezra. We're in the book of Ezra. So if you can pull that up on your, on your device or if you've got a Bible, which I would actually challenge you to go ahead and get the paper version so you can, can find your way. Um, but Ezra... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra. Um, before we get started, uh, I do want to kind of go ahead and let you have a little bit of a conversation, and it'll make sense when we get when I've further into the book. But there should be a group leader at each table. Is there, where we, did you find my stuff? Okay, if you would go ahead and do question number one, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to answer question number one around your table. On your mark, get set and go. About another minute.
We were currently living in St. Louis, and I had the opportunity. Karen actually works for work. It worked and works for an organization called Lead Like Jesus, and they were doing a leadership summit at Palm Beach Atlantic uh, University. Uh, some of the main speakers were Tony Dungy, Tony Blair, uh, Ken. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the name, but a bunch of leadership gurus, and I was, God had, had begun to change my calling from a minister of music to a pastor, and I was telling Karen, she invited me to come, and so literally, um, I was shoveling snow one morning to get out of my driveway, and then flying into West Palm Beach, uh, it was like the greatest day ever. Um, and so I was attending and I just, it's just beautiful. The campus is beautiful. That area is beautiful. And it was, it was a February. So it wasn't a, a time of the year where there were a lot of people there. So it was just wonderful. Had a wonderful two or three days, got to meet Tony Dungy and, uh, got to hear some of those, those leadership people speak and just really enjoyed it. And then on the way home, because a former student, uh, we had gotten our tickets from a former student's mom who, who was a, a, a stewardess for Delta. And my flight uh, coming home was at 6 a.m. And so I get to the airport when I'm supposed to get to the airport and I'm on, I'm flying buddy on standby and I don't get on the eight o'clock. So they put me on a nine o'clock. And um, by 11.30 that night, I had, I had just not made every flight and I was on the standby list and I don't, I don't know why, but I was about just to have this come apart. Just here I've done all day long and I can't get on a flight and I'm watching the board and I am right behind whatever Lucas M, Lucas M, and she called for Lucas M like 13 times, and I'm sitting there going, if she calls for him a 14th, this is not going to go well for me. And then she said, Jonathan Key, and I was like, I have won the lottery. And But I just remember this feeling of, despite the fact that I was in a wonderful place, I couldn't get home. I was, I was not going to be, I was not going to make it home. I was stuck where I was, despite of how, how wonderful. That'll translate in just, just a few minutes as we're diving into this book called Ezra. Um, it is more than likely the author, uh, there, there really, it's two books that are one. Sort of like First and Second Samuel is really one book that, that later on scholars divided into two. Ezra and Nehemiah are really one book. And the same author that wrote the Chronicles, the, he's the same author of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some scholars think it is Ezra himself, Ezra the priest, Ezra the prophet. Um, but most people will tell you it's anonymous. You can't defin definitively know who the author of this book is. Um, but it is one book. If there was a summary statement on these two characters, because the main characters are Ezra and Nehemiah, but, if, but the character that we're really looking at is the nation of Israel. That's who we're looking at. We're looking at the people of God. We're looking at the nation of Israel throughout these books, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and we're looking at their journey. And if there was a summary statement, if you need a pen, I've got some up here, but you should have a sheet of paper to take some notes on. Um, is the summary statement, which Warren Wearsby kind of says really well, it's restoring the spiritual heart of the nation. Restoring the spiritual heart of the nation. And so what I want to do, we're going to pray it intermittently throughout the evening. So go ahead and look at prayer emphasis number one. And I want to be respectful here, but I want, to, I want to continue to guide us. When we have time to take requests from one another, what I, when I say, when I capitalize, when you'll, the, the team leaders will usually see that I've capitalized the word briefly, share requests. Oftentimes we get into groups like these and we get to the request time and we spend 25 minutes sharing our request and then a minute and a half praying for it. And, and there there's just comes a time where we don't need to know the whole background of the story. We just need to know that your, your kid's sick. Or we just need to know that you're, we're praying for your uncle to get his life right. I don't mean to be disrespectful. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what we need to do is we need to spend more time on the praying side of it 
in, in abbreviating the story. But I do want to open our time tonight by praying for one another, but mostly with a, hey, let's have our hearts and minds open to what God wants to say to us tonight. So I'm going to give you about two minutes. Just ask somebody at the group to pray for the group. You may want to take a couple of requests if there is something going on so that we can pray for one another. But let's take two or three minutes and let's just pray for one another at the table. But pray also that your hearts and minds would be open to what God's word has to say tonight. On your mark, set, go. Father, I have so very much valued our Wednesday nights because I've walked away with something every week. Uh, it, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's hit me like a ton of bricks. Sometimes it's just been something kind of small that I didn't know before. Oftentimes it's been sitting at the table while Tony or Karen has been teaching and I've heard uh, somebody's reaction to something that they've uh, thrown out on the table it's always been by something that we were able to find in your word. And so, Father, whether it be in a dramatic way or whether it just be in a small way, I pray that we'd walk out of this room more like you than when we walked in. Because we've been in your presence, we've heard your voice, and we've been changed by your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we start, uh, as we look at this combination of Ezra and Nehemiah, Tonight's going to be a little bit of a history lesson, and then when we get to Nehemiah, uh, we'll, we're going to kind of dive into some of the, uh, the more drama or, or the more lessons that, that uh, God has for us in, in the, his inclusion of those two books. So I want to give you some information that you can fill in in your, in your handout. Uh, 740 B.C., so in Ezra, we're really in about 538 B.C., but a little over a century before that, in 740 B.C., King Uzziah 
is the king. King Uzziah is the king, and Isaiah has been called to be a prophet. Uzziah is the king, and Isaiah has been called to be a prophet. If you'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, if you're using the Bible from the chairs, turn to page 605. Page 605. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Some of you may, this may be a familiar passage of Scripture. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of, their door, of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe to me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to these people, Keep listening, but do not understand. And he replied, Go, say to these people. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the nation of Israel. Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears and eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back, and be healed. Then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, and this is where we're focusing tonight. Most sermons are going to focus on that first part that we just read, focusing on Isaiah's encounter with the Lord, his vision, his encounter with the seraphim and the unclean lips and, and so on. But hear, hear this. Then I said, Until when, Lord? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, until houses are without people, until the land is ruined and desolate. Look at verse 12, and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. And without, not meaning to leave out verse 13, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. But listen to verse 12 again. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. If you were here last week and Tony was teaching us through 2 Kings, what do you remember about the kings of Israel? The vast majority of them, the, the morality declined pretty, pretty quickly from king to king. Here and there, you would have a Josiah or a couple of others that, that did what was right in the Lord's sight, but even during a part of their reign, even in Judah or in Israel, the kings of the nation of Israel, the morality, the dependence on God, the adherence to the book of the law, uh, that just declined dramatically to the point that I, you would even, I think scripture even calls several of them wicked and several of them evil. And so what is happening here and Isaiah is saying at some point, the nation of Israel is going to get so far out of bounds that God is going to drive the people far away, that he is going to pull them from their land. Their land is going to be empty. They're not going to be, they're not following me anyway. So why would I keep them here? Turn over, uh, let me go to the next one, uh, 626 BC. The king is Josiah. And Jeremiah is called now to be a prophet. Now, the Bible is not in, is not in, uh, in order, necessarily. It's not in a calendar order. I'm blanking on the word that I'm looking for. Chronological, thank you. I couldn't get the word consecutive out of my mind. Um, it's not in chronological order. Isaiah, way past Ezra. Jeremiah, right next to, to Isaiah in just a minute. But King Josiah, he's the one that kind of turns the corner. He's, he's got, he starts off really, really well. But do you remember what happens during King Josiah's reign? It happens in 622. What do they find that they've not been using for quite a while? The book of the law is found. Here they have, they have declined so uh, awfully that they don't even know where the book of the law is. And they come upon it 
in the temple. They find it in the temple. They find God's word in the temple, but they've, it's been lost for decades because they don't hang out there very much. That's how bad it is with Israel. That is how far off their eyes have wandered from God. That's how, that's how uh, their living has strayed so far from God's word and God's law. They had to find the book of the law. And then in 609, Jeremiah preaches this temple sermon. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, if you're in the book, the Bible in the chairs, it's number, it's page 672, page 672, Jeremiah chapter seven, I'm starting with verse one. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, here's basically what he's saying about that, the whole temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. That would literally be like living like hell Monday through Saturday. And I mean like living like hell. Like you pick whatever definition of that you mean. I'm not saying that you make mistakes. I'm not saying that you sin just because you're human. I'm talking about choosing a, a lifestyle that just totally goes against what God and everything God stands for and being just as outward with it as you possibly can. Living like hell, not caring, and then coming into church, well, hey, brother, hey, brother, hey, brother, isn't it a glorious day in the Lord? Isn't it a glorious day in the Lord? Isn't it a glorious day in the Lord? In other words, he's highlighting their hypocrisy, not to mention that cheesiness, and just saying that's what it's like. You're doing it with your mouth, but you're doing nothing with your hearts and your actions. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves. In other words, that's what they're doing. They're scorning the orphans. They're mocking the widows. They're shedding innocent blood. And they're shedding innocent blood in this place. Where do you think that is? In the temple area. They're following other gods. They're bringing harm on themselves. If you, if you will no longer do this, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. But, but look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that can't help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods that you've not known? Then do come and stand before me in this house that bear my name and say we are rescued so you can continue doing all these detestable acts. In other words, they thought that their attendance sufficed and would carry them through when they decided to live like they wanted to. If we just show up, go through the motions, we'll be good to go and live like we want to. Has this house, which bears my name, become a demon of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. Skip down to verse 16. As for you, do not pray for these people. He's talking to Jeremiah. Don't pray for these people. Don't offer a cry or a prayer on their behalf. Don't beg me, for I won't listen to you. Have you seen how they behave in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The sons gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women need dough to make cakes. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods. So they provoke me to anger. But are they really provoking me? This is the Lord's declaration, isn't it? They themselves being provoked to disgrace. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. Look, my anger, my burning wrath is about to be poured out on this place. On people and animals, on the trees of, of the field, and on the produce of the land, my wrath will burn and not be quenched. This is not the God that we talk about often. This is the God that hates sin. Why does God hate sin? Because sin is what keeps us from him. 
Sin is what hinders, sin is what blocks, sin is that obstacle between us, the created, and him, the creator. And his love for us demands his wrath on sin. Turn down to verse 27. When you do speak all these things to them, they're not going to listen to you. When you call to them, they won't answer you. Therefore declare to them, this is the nation that would not listen to the Lord their God. And would not accept discipline. Truth has perished, has disappeared from their mouths. Cut off the hair of your sacred brow and throw it away. In other words, you're going to be mourning. Raise up a dirge on the barren heights, you're going to be mourning. Verse 30 For the Judeans have done what is evil in my sight. They have set up their abhorrent things in the house that bears my name in order to defile it. Look at verse 32. Therefore, look, the days are coming. When this place will no longer be called Tepeth and ben but the valley of slaughter. Tepeth will become a cemetery because there will be no other burial place. The corpses of these people will become food for the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land. I will remove from the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the sound of joy and the gladness and the voices of the groom and the bride, for the land will become a desolate waste. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Woo! Here's what's happening. Israel has so far gone off the deep end, that, in, but God has made a promise. He's not going to wipe out the entire world again. He already made that promise in Genesis. But they are so far gone, partly because of leadership taking them that direction. But they are so far gone that God is like, I've got to do something drastic to get my, to get my people's attention. I had a youth minister in high school, uh, excuse me, middle school, beginning of high school, whose testimony, actually he serves in Tampa now. He's the pastor of Indian Rocks Baptist Church. His name is Jeff Parrish. And Jeff was at Memphis State University. And Jeff was an All-American and Jeff was probably going to go play pro. And matter of fact, in his sophomore year, the Lord told Jeff that he needed to stop playing football, that, that he, had, he was calling him into full-time ministry. And, the, and Jeff, when he says, shares his testimony, he says he told the Lord, thank you, but no thank you, that he was going to play pro ball. And uh, he said the Lord just made it very clear through relationships and through Bible studies and through his own time alone that Jeff was being called to ministry. And Jeff said, I told the Lord what he could do with his calling and I was going to play football. And in the second game of, I think it was the second or third game of the season that year, um, somebody took uh, a bad move on Jeff and they completely tore his uh, ACLs, that was called. And it wasn't like a, 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 an injury. They literally tore it right off the knee completely to the point that when Jeff walks, you can hear it go. And as a youth, that was the coolest sound ever. But as a person who thought he was going to play pro, it was this moment. And, and the way Jeff says it is he, he shares that God had to do something to get my attention. And that's what he chose to do. What's happening here is Israel is so far removed from the people who followed the Lord out of Egypt. They are so far gone that the Lord realizes I've got to do something drastic. I've got to do something painful to get their attention. I love them this much. They're, 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 take, they're gone. I've got to get them back. So in 609, this is, that was Jeremiah's temple sermon. But I want you to go ahead and look at question number two. In the passages that we just read out of, out of Isaiah and out of Jeremiah, answer question number two, and then go ahead, guys, and go into prayer emphasis number two as well. I'm going to give you four or five minutes. On your mark, get set, go.
check. If you haven't transitioned already, go ahead and go into prayer emphasis number two. Prayer emphasis number two. another minute. going to ask Michaela to offer a prayer on our behalf for emphasis number two. Michaela. Um, thank you, Lord, for just who you are. And um, Lord, this place that you've given us to worship and um, Lord, we just lift our church leadership up to you, God, that you would continue to make known to them uh, your will. God, that you would um, give them the boldness and strength they need to walk in it, Lord, and that you would just... Um, guide and protect them as they lead and shepherd us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let me ask you, how, are, how is Israel being warned? I mean, we kind of talked about it, but it's sort of obvious, but how are they being warned? What's God, what's God telling them? What? Enough is enough. enough, is enough. Stop doing this stuff. So what is the, and it seems odd that there might even be an encouragement in that, but, but what is the encouragement in that same warning? Say it, say it again. I want you to come back to me. I want you to stop doing this, restart doing this. If you keep doing this, I'm going to pull you from the land, but if you'll, you'll, you'll restart doing what I told you to do, you can stay where I've put you. And when we could probably thrive here. Jay, you're going to say something. And it was profound. But you had a question. Anybody? Anybody have a difference that they know of? Oh, say it out loud. We have the Holy 
We have the Holy Spirit. We have grace. There is a, and we have, we, we are on the other side of the cross. We are, but we, we have, so there, there are numerous similarities regarding rebellion. But if we're talking about a major difference between us and the people now, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, that there, there was this one of those, what do they call it, like a Facebook post or a meme or something like that. And it was, uh, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask Moses what it was like to part the Red Sea. And I'm going to ask Noah what it was going to like to be on the ark. And they're going to turn back and look at me and say, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? And it's, so here we have God speaking through the, pro, the prophets and they're rejecting these prophets. But the, one of the main differences that you and I have is that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who is revealing, who is teaching, who is guiding, who is answering our questions. That's one of the things I love about the Holy Spirit because I, there are a billion and one things that I don't understand about Scripture. And so while I'm sitting there studying, while I'm preparing for a sermon, while I'm just having my own devotional life and I don't get it, I find myself going, okay, Holy Spirit, I don't, I don't understand this. What does it mean? And I have that with me. And then when, when, or he may speak through somebody else a little bit later in the conversation. I think that's the main, that to me, that was the, that was the answer to my question was the Holy Spirit's the difference because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there is a lot about the rebellion that is very similar at the same time. Let's keep going down the timeline. Did, sorry. What? Which then goes to, are we permeating the culture or is the, per, the culture permeating us? So, I mean, and that was the whole point of, of what was happening in Israel. Uh, they had gotten to a place where, uh, I think by then, so we're at, we're a little past King Josiah, so we're not quite to Ahaz yet, but we're, what's happening is now we're intermarrying, we're interreligioning, uh, and, and paganism has infiltrated the church to the point that the temple Obviously, it's not being used to the point where they can find the book of law. I keep looking at you because you're the second king's guy. But we're at a point in time where paganism has so infiltrated the church that, that nothing looks different. There is nothing about the temple. There's nothing about the synagogue. There's nothing about their faith that is differentiating them from the, from the nations around them. And it all started with, we want a king just like everybody else has back in Samuel, uh, in First Samuel when they got Saul. In 605 to 586, uh, we're not going to turn there, but there's a prophet called Obadiah. So Obadiah, which is later on in the Old Testament from an order of the book standpoint, that's happening now. In 605 to 530, the events of Daniel are starting to happen. I'm excited about to get to the book of Daniel at, at, at some point. 593 to 571, the events of Ezekiel are happening. These are prophets that are a little um, later in the book, but chronologically, now I'm just going to use that word because I can, um, chronologically they're happening at the same time of these events. And then you get to 597 and a big name enters the picture. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. If you're spelling it, it's Nebu, N-E-B-U, Chad, Nezer, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem, which begins the Babylonian captivity of Israel. This is when things really turn a corner. Uh, this is when it all happens. Uh, Isaiah has prophesied it. Jeremiah has prophesied it. The people have not relented. They've gotten worse. And finally, God just does it. And this evil ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, from Babylon, comes in, attacks Israel and exiles them to Babylon. Turn uh, to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 24, page 342, if you're using the Bible in, in the chairs. 2 Kings chapter 24, excuse me, page 343, actually. I'm in verse 10 of chapter 24. At that time, the servants of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. 
King Jehoiakim of Judah, along with his mother, his servants, his commanders, and his officials, surrendered to the king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He carried off from there all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king's palace, and he cut into pieces all the gold articles that King Solomon of Israel had made for the Lord's sanctuary. Just in case you weren't aware, Solomon, David's son, is the one who built the temple. David kind of started the process, but due to circumstances that God intervened, Solomon is the one who builds the temple. So that's what that's referring to. He deported, 14, he deported all Jerusalem and all the commanders and all the best soldiers, 10,000 captives, including all the craftsmen and all the metalsmiths, except for the poorest people of the land. No one remained. Nebuchadnezzar deported Jehoiakim to Babylon. He took the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The king of Babylon brought captive into Babylon all 7,000 of the best soldiers and 1,000 craftsmen and metalsmiths, all strong and fit for war. Why is, this, why is this strategic? Why is this important? Because these were days of war. This was a, this was, that was the context, the culture. Uh, you, you, you were powerful the more land you had. You were powerful the bigger your army was. So here King Nebuchadnezzar has come over Israel and he's taken every man, everybody worth fighting. He's like, you work for me now. I own you. Who's he leave behind? The poorest people in the land. So what happens here is in 586, Nebuchadnezzar actually destroys the temple. The temple is destroyed. But in 559 BC, Cyrus the Great founds the Persian Empire. And in 539, Cyrus captures Babylon. 538 BC, Cyrus issues an edict. For whatever reasons, Cyrus issues an edict allowing the Jews to return to Judah and rebuild the temple. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It's going to be page 406 if you're using the Bible in the chairs. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. King Cyrus is not a believer. King Cyrus is not a God follower. He's a pagan. But God's rousing the spirit inside of him to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. This is what, the king, this is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. Just look across the page at Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. The, the first verses say the exact same thing that we just read at the end of Chronicles. That's how we know this is probably the same author. But go to verse 3 of Ezra chapter 1. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him. Okay, do you remember what I just said about Cyrus? Cyrus is what? He's a pagan. He's not a believer. But, the, but God has roused his spirit and Cyrus is talking to the Jewish people who have been exiled. We're, we're going into to some generations here. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Little does he know God's everywhere. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Look at questions number three and four and talk, among, talk amongst yourselves when you mark, set, go.
Don't do question four. Don't do question four. I think my sheet is wrong there. Let me back up real quick for you real quick. Put yourself in the sandals of the people of Israel. What's going through your heart and mind with this announcement? You just heard you're going home. What's going through your heart and mind? I'm going home. (laughs) Say it again. They have to make a new home. They have to start all over. They're not going to go back and find it just the way they left it because they've been exiled for years. Not only have they been exiled, but they've, they've not been in control of their own lives. And all of a sudden Cyrus comes and, and God uses this to set things back in motion. But if your leadership, what hopefully is, is going on in your mind? We got to do things differently. We cannot go back and live the same way we just lived. Something's got to change or, or this is going to happen again. God has just demonstrated himself to us. I asked the question, I don't think I wrote it down, but can, you, just, you don't have to answer this, but can you recall an instance in your life where God blessed you or God answered a prayer well beyond what you could have imagined or well beyond what you deserved? Can you imagine an instance in your life where God answered a prayer or delivered you from something well beyond what you know you deserved? And that's what's happened here. If I was to give you a summary of, I think these are some blanks there on your, on your sheaf. If I was to give you a summary of Ezra, who was the prophet and the priest, a summary would be restoration and recommitment. Some people may use the word rededication. But they get called out and they get punished for their sinful nature. They get called out and punished for their sinful living. They get called out and punished for their rebellion and it is dramatic and it is drastic because God has got to get their attention so they don't go so far off the cliff. But what he does during this season in exile and it happens in in this, this time period through these prophets and then in the book of Ezra is the return. Ezra and Nehemiah are really the return of the people of, of Israel. So it's a time of restoration and it's a recommitment. What happens is a remnant returns in chapters one and two. There's a remnant of Israel that's brought back. A remnant is a smaller group that is faithful, a smaller group that is, is consistent, a smaller group that is following and that God is gonna bless. And then the temple rebuilds. They begin to focus on the temple because they realize that the temple, the temple is where God met them literally, physically, again, not having the Holy Spirit, but the temple signified an allegiance. The temple signified a commitment to God. The temple told the nations around them who their God was. And the temple begins in chapter three. The temple is opposed by people in chapter four. The construction of the temple resumes in chapter five. And then in chapter six uh, in Ezra, it's completed. But what happens in, in chapters seven through 10 is the people recommit. The people recommit their relationship with God. And in chapter nine in Ezra, it's a time of confession. And in chapter 10, it's a time of cleansing. Turn to Ezra chapter nine. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, verse 4. This is where I just wrote it wrong on your sheet, and you shouldn't have gone to 1 John quite yet. Although I will. Tony, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, please, and have that ready. Ezra chapter 9, verse 4 says, Everyone who trembled at the word of God of Israel gathered around me. This is Ezra speaking. Gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. Now the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you. 
my God. Because our iniquities, our trespasses, our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword. Captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. This is what's happening while they're in exile. But now for a brief moment, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our, our, our eyes. Does that remind you of a passage in Romans that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to get everything right. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief, a light to our eyes. Though we were slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. You could substitute the word slavery for sin. In the Hebrew, these are words that are not interchangeable necessarily, but they are implying one another. So while they're talking about the slavery of the exile, they know that the reason they were in slavery in the exile was because of their rebellion and their sin. And what they're saying was even even in our slavery, we were introduced to grace. <clears throat> Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. In other words, he's letting us start all over. That's what salvation is. Salvation is an opportunity to start all over. That's really what every morning is. Lamentations. His morning, his mercies are new every morning. And then he continues to repent. Go down to chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God. When's the last time we fell and wept face down? An extremely large assembly of men, women, and children gathered around him, weeping also bitterly. Tony, read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Israel has gone so far off the deep end. In, a, in the love of a father, he has disciplined his children. But in his love and in his grace, he has restored them and given them an opportunity to commit themselves back to him. And that is half of the story of, his, of Ezra in Nehemiah, that we have a grace-filled, grace-extending, grace-loving God who doesn't let us go so far out of his reach, but loves us enough to discipline us and loves us enough to bring us back and loves us enough to set our feet on the rock and start the adventure all over. I want you to look at that last little prayer emphasis. Prayer emphasis number four, number five. Starts with prayer for revival. The central idea of Ezra is restoring the spiritual heart of the nation. I just want to ask you to close our time tonight by praying for VBS, by praying for our church, by praying that God would continue to be at work among us. On your mark, get set.
Father, as we close our time tonight, we do so just by saying thank you. Thanking you for your grace. Thanking you for your mercy. Thanking you for your unconditional love. Thanking you for your forgiveness. Thanking you that time and time again, you forgive us. You renew us. You restore us. You continue to bless us. You continue to use us. And then you forgive us. And you restore us. And you renew us. And you use us. And you forgive us. And you restore us. And you renew us. And you use us. Because you are a God of incredible grace. We see we understand your wrath. We understand your hate for sin because you are a holy God. We are so grateful to also know this God of unconditional love, of ever available forgiveness, and of reconciliation. Thank you for your prophet your priest, Ezra, for what he has to teach us. Thank you for what the pages of your word teach us as we even just walk through a timeline in the example of your people and your love for them and your love for us. Pray that we're walking out of here a little bit more like you than when we walked in because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We won't have it next week because of EBS, but we'll be back. Yeah,